praise the Lord. Yes, we do. All right. You'll turn in your Bibles today to Acts chapter 2. Acts, the second chapter. Remember, tonight at 5.30 is our prayer time back in the large Sunday school room. And then we're having, we will be having evening service tonight at 6. I realize that if you've been watching the news, you might know that there's some, some bad weather that are coming to this area. It's my understanding uh, the southwestern part of the state's going to get a little bit harder than, than we are. And what we will get will probably be uh, after... Uh, after you're able to get back home. So we're all going to have service tonight. If we get here and it starts to get a little bad weather, we'll, we'll shorten our service, make sure you can get home. But uh, we are having service tonight. And if we are in for bad weather, you want to be prayed up. So it's a good time to come to church. Amen. Acts chapter 2, we're just going to start in verse 1. We're going to read the entirety of that chapter. And so I'm going to have to read fast, which means you're going to have to listen uh, fast. But Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, I'm reading from the New King James Version. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled all the house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when, they, uh, when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then were, they were all amazed and marveled, <coughs> excuse me, saying one to another, Look, not all these who speak Galileans, and how is it that we hear each one in his own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of that great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. 
whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, and as many as the Lord your God will call. And, many, and with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things common, and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject, an anatomy of a New Testament church. Anatomy of a New Testament church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in the precious name of Jesus, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would add your, your anointing to seal the reading of it and also, Lord, to assist in the preaching of it. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise for his word today. Amen, amen, and amen. The first three centuries of the New Testament church, the church flowed in Holy Ghost power. Those were interesting times. They were times of, that they faced persecution, but they were also times that they experienced the miracle-working power of God. Their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ was red hot. It was heartfelt. 
And then about middle way or so through the fourth century, something began to happen in the church. The first thing that began to happen in the late 300s was that Constantine had, had said that he'd seen a sign in the heavens. And he caused really Christianity to become the official religion of Rome. And so people were baptized that had never had a born-again experience with God. And the church became institutionalized. And what God created to be an organism had become an organization. It had become an institution. God created the body of Christ to be his body with him as the head. But it began more and more through the years to take on the aspects of human understanding, human ability. And that's the way it existed for the next 1,200 years or so. It had become so entrenched that it took a mighty reformation, a move of the Spirit of God to start bringing forth this New Testament church, this first century model of the church. And so along in the late 1800s came groups of people that began to look and say, what we want is we want a New Testament church. We want a church that clings to the same doctrine that the New Testament church cling to. We want to dilute, we want to, to uh, distill rather than dilute. We want to get rid of man's creeds, man's opinions, man's ideas. We want to get back to the book. We want to have the same doctrine that the apostles had. Not only do we want the same doctrine, we want the same power that the early church had. We want to live a life that is full of joy and power, but we want to see the mighty works of God. We also want the same kind of heartfelt purity that the first church had. We want to get rid of this worldliness, this, this materialism, this idea of getting more and more in this life. We want to be a church of New Testament power and purity and precepts. And so they begin to seek God for a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They wanted to see the kind of church that we see on the day of Pentecost. And so those people got labeled with a tag. They were called Pentecostals because they wanted to see a Pentecostal church. But this is what happens to every group of people. Someone said every move of God was born in a cave and died in a cathedral. The landscape in Europe is littered with great cathedrals that were built in the name of Christ that are now largely nothing more than museums to a bygone era. The impact of Christianity in Europe has faded to the point that it's almost non-existent. So we want a New Testament. We want a first century church in a 21st century context. So how do you become a New Testament church? Well, the first thing you got to do is you got to have an anatomy lesson. Now, anatomy does mean the study of the body, but it has a second definition. It means the study of a structure or the internal workings of something. 
So when we talk about an anatomy of the New Testament church, we want to look in Acts chapter 2 and find out what kind of a church they were, and we want to say that's the kind of church we want God to make us into. The first thing that we see about them is they were a glowing church. A glowing church. John the Baptist said of Jesus, I baptize you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And on the day of Pentecost when 120 believers were gathered there, they started 40 days after Jesus had resurrected from the dead and then he arose and went back to heaven after 40 days and they went back to the upper room at his command. He told them to go into all the world, but he said, first, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father and you will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And they waited there for 10 days until the feast day of Pentecost was fully come and that's what we read in Acts chapter 2 when the day of Pentecost was fully come there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and uh, cloven tongues or divided tongues we get that confused what that means that means lapping tongues of fire like you sit and watch in your fireplace the divided licking tongues of fire that you see he said that that set upon each of them and of course they begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. In other words, they were set on fire by the Holy Spirit. Now what we find in a lot of churches is that we have more heat than we do light. And thank God we get into those red hot services and have red hot times. But God doesn't just want us to be red hot. He wants us to shed the light. Now I remember I used to work Many, many years ago, almost 25 years ago, I used to work down at the Ford dealership and I was a service writer. People came in. We didn't even have computers. We used paper. <laughs> and, and we would write up what was wrong with their car. And the window was tinted and a lady came in and her headlights on her car were inoperative. And I looked through that tinted window and I could not tell if, the church, if, if her car was white or gray or light blue because the windows were tinted. And so I look out the window and I look back at her and I said, light blue? She said, I guess so, they just don't work anymore. <laughs> right? And I remember a guy that took his car, I was told about a guy that took his car to a dealership. And he said, I don't understand, my car won't crank, but the horn will blow. The horn will blow, but the lights won't come on. It said, it can't be the battery, the horn will blow, but the lights won't come on. And the advisor told him, said, sir, well, the problem is, is it takes more power to burn the, burn the lights than it does to honk the horn. And there are a lot of churches that way. Their horn works just right. They can talk a good game. They can toot their own horn, but we were put into this world to be the light of the world. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And this light that we're supposed to be is not an afterglow. And I think sometimes that, that as good church of God people, we think, that that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to come to church on Sunday and have a good service and then that's supposed to fuel our light during the next week. Right? 
But if you'll remember the story of Moses, when Moses went up uh, on the mountain in 2 Corinthians 3, 7, the Bible says the law of Moses brought uh, only the promise of death, even though it was carved on stones and given in a wonderful way. Still the law made Moses' face shine so brightly that the people of Israel could not look at it, even though it was a fading glory. When he was in the presence of God, it made his face shine and he put a veil over his face that because people couldn't look at the brightness of his face. But then verse 13, 2 Corinthians 3, 13 says, We're not like Moses. His face was shining, but he covered it to keep the people of Israel from seeing the fact that the brightness was fading away. At first he put the veil on because it was so bright they couldn't look at him. But he left the veil on because the brightness was fading away. And that's what happens with so many Christians. We get uh, born again. We get filled with the Spirit of God. We're in a wonderful conference or a wonderful service or a wonderful revival. And for a while there's an afterglow in our lives. There's, we've been in the presence of God and people can tell. But then that glory of that experience begins to fade away and it starts to fade and now we've put on a mask we put on a veil we no longer have that glow but we don't want anybody to know that we lost the glow you know that term afterglow as it relates to our earth is at the end at the very end of the sunset there's a lingering because the light is diffused by the particles there's a lingering little glow but it fades away it's, it, afterglow is actually a term that the drug culture uses. They said after you've been high and that high is just about to fade away, there's still a little bit of an afterglow. It is even used in terms of romance. You go on a wonderful first date with somebody and then when you kiss her goodnight and take her to her house on the way home, you just are just filled with that euphoria and that excitement of having met someone that you're infatuated with. But I want you to know that the light that God wants us to have is not an afterglow, it's an inner glow. It's not that it comes from some experience with God. It comes from a relationship with the living God. John 9, 5, Jesus said, As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. But in Matthew 5, 14, he says, You are the light of the world, a city set on the hill that cannot be hid. It is our responsibility to fuel the fire. You remember Jesus talked about the wedding party that came and there were five wise virgins and five foolish virgins and the fine wives, uh, five wise virgins had kept enough oil in their lamp and they had kept their wicks trimmed and burning and they had plenty of light but the five foolish ones did not have enough oil in their lamp to make it until the time. I'm going to tell you we do need to make sure that if our light begins to flicker we go into the presence of God and let him trim the wick and get rid of the things that's making us smoke and smudge. We need to let the Spirit of God fill us up with the oil that keeps our light burning. I knew that when I was a little young and singing in Sunday school. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. going to let it shine all over Douglas. I'm going to let it shine. 
I won't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. When was the last time somebody came up to you and said, I appreciate the fact that no matter where you are, you let your light shine. Back in 1989 in Romania, there was a pastor called Laszlo Tokes that refused to let the uh, communist regime uh, and the dictator Ceausescu, he refused to let them edit his sermons. And they came to arrest him and take him away. And of every kind of ilk, Pentecostals, Baptists, Reformed, all kinds of different ilk of Christians gathered up in front of his house and barricaded the door. Finally, the soldiers were able to break through and drag totes away. But the crowd didn't disperse. Some had had enough forethought to bring some candles. And they passed candles out in that little town, or that town of Timisora, Romania. They passed candles out and they began to light those candles. And they began to march on the city square. There was one young man, Daniel Garva. He walked hand in hand, arm in arm, with a young Pentecostal girl. And it wasn't long before the, the soldiers were given the command to open fire. And Daniel felt a pain in his leg as his legs were shot out, uh, shot out from under him. And he also felt, felt that young girl slip from his arms and lay dead uh, beside him because she had been killed in the fray. But it wasn't long until Chastescu fled town Communism fell in Romania and a time of freedom was ushered in because people let their life shine. Well, Pastor Peter went to visit Daniel in the hospital after all of that and Daniel had had to have his leg amputated and laying there missing a leg, he said to his pastor, he said, I don't mind so much the loss of my leg because you see, it was I that lit the first candle. Now we can spend all of our time cursing the darkness, but that doesn't do anything. In fact, I know we're good Pentecostals and we think that the louder we get, the more power we have. But if you were in a windowless room and you turned out the light, it would not matter how hard, how loud, how much, uh, much gusto and bravado you had. You could curse the darkness till the cows come home. You're going to be a noisy person in a dark room. But if you'll reach over and switch on the light, the darkness flees before the light. We don't need a noisy church. We need a church on fire that's letting its light shine before men we need to be a glowing church not only do we need to be a glowing church but we need to be a going church the new testament church was a going church we don't really know the bible doesn't tell us how this happened but it does tell us that what happened in the upper room was noise abroad and people came to check it out and somewhere in the midst of that great move of god God's people did not stay in the confines of the upper room. At some point they got down on the street. At some point they made it to the temple. At some point they were around where other people were. This is hard for us to accept sometimes. But the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, was not given to give us more passion in worship 
Let me say that again. That is a, that is a wonderful byproduct. But he was not given to give us more passion in worship. He was given to give us more power in service. See, when we say we had a Holy Ghost service, we meant we got blessed. We meant that the singing was better and the preaching was better. You know, my preaching's better when I have the Holy Ghost involved in it. But he didn't give that so that we'd have better entertainment. He gave us that so that when we leave here, we go in power. And Jesus said to do that. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. Again, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all those that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. A glowing church has to become a going church. The light's not any good as long as it's in the basket of West, 700 West Ward Street. We don't need the light in here. We've got the light in here. But when you go home, when you go to your community, when you go to your neighborhood, when you go on your job, when you go to your school, and when we say go, we mean two things. Matthew 28, 19, 20 says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that, thou, that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now we call that passage of Scripture the Great Suggestion. Right? Call it the good idea. What do we call that? The Great Commission. In fact, somebody said this. They said, I don't use the term Great Commission anymore. I just use the term the Commission. Because if it's the Great Commission, that implies that he gave some other commission that's not quite as great. This is not the Great Commission. It's the only commission. This is the only job he left us to do. He did not leave us the job to build buildings. He didn't leave us the job to raise money. He didn't leave us the job to uh, have a good choir. He didn't leave us a job to find a good looking preacher. He gave us the job to go into all the world and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And that means that we go both individually and institutionally. That we do it as an individual in the parts of life we are, but we don't stop there. We find ways as a body of people to go and to tell. And it is the commission. C-O, co-mission. That means that we have to do it together. And a glowing church, and a going church will be a growing church. I want you to imagine this with me. Jesus said, okay, I want you to go in all the world, but before you go, wait. Wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now he's talking to a ragtag group of people. He's talking to a motley crew. He's giving them a commission that is beyond their ability to accomplish. 
I mean, how would you like Jesus to say that? We're more than they than they than the twelve were just here. How would you like to say, okay, Westward Church of God, it's up to you to preach the gospel all over the world? I mean, that's a staggering commitment, but they waited for the promise of the Father. And the very day that the promised Holy Spirit came, that day, one sermon, 3,000 were added that day. And they were not just 3,000, they were 3,000 that were from all over the world that would go back home and take the gospel with them. In a few days, that number grew from 3,120 to 8,120. 5,000 were saved. Now here's the question. If we had a great revival at Westward Church of God and God did a marvelous work and just started sending people and in one service we had 3,000 saved, what in the world would we do with it? Interesting question, isn't it? Well, what did the early church do? Well, let's look at it. Number one, they grew spiritually. Verse 42 and 43, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. They came to church, they participated in communion, and they fellowship with one another and they practice the spiritual discipline of prayer. And as a result, verse 43, fear came upon every soul because there were many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. It wasn't just going through motions. There was the power of the Holy Spirit. They grew spiritually. Number two, they grew relationally with each other. Now all who believed were together and they had all things in common. They sold their possessions of good, divided it among them all as anyone had need. They grew relationally. Verse 46, so they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. They grew relationally with each other. And we, we have somehow in the latter part of the 20th century and on into the 21st century, we somehow have forgotten what it was to be the church and just require people to come to church. I'm not trying to criticize us. I'm just trying to accurately depict where we are. We treat the church like we treat the movie theater. That if we can have a good enough movie and we can do a good enough job with PR, we can get people to buy a ticket and come. And I'm, I'm not talking about lost people. I'm talking about church members. That, it, that, that, that if there's something that I think I can get out of it that Sunday and it's not too good a weather and it's not too bad a weather, then I, yeah, I might come. Might surprise you to hear, I've said this before, might surprise you to hear when I was growing up, my family didn't go to church. 
We were part of a church. That's not the same thing. Attending church and being part of a church are not the same thing. I know there are people that kind of poo-poo the idea of us getting together and eat. Or let's getting together and having fellowship. There are some people that have the idea, well that's just, that's not spiritual. But can I tell you that when you are full of the Holy Spirit and you're in love with Jesus, you can go fishing with somebody and it become a spiritual situation? In fact, it seems like Jesus did that a couple of times, don't it? That when you're full of the Holy Spirit and you're full of the love of Jesus, that, that you, you get together and have a meal or, or, have, or play games, but somewhere in the middle of that, it becomes a spiritual experience because you're in an atmosphere where people's guards are down and they begin to share with one another. And that doesn't happen whenever you got 150 people in a building and the preacher's preaching. That kind of relational growth doesn't happen in a large setting. That kind of relational growth happens among people that spend time with each other. You ever been around somebody in a social setting and Jesus get involved in the conversation? You ever had somebody in a social setting open to you up and say, you know, nobody at the church knows this, but my family's going through such and such, and you reach your hand across the table and say, well, let's talk to God about it right now. So, so when we try to have a small group thing, it's not that we're trying to get out of having church. It's we're trying to get people to spend time with each other so that we can do like the early church, going from house to house, breaking bread, growing relationally with one another so that we become a church. Because to you and I that's been around West Ward a long time, it's not intimidating for us to come in to 150 or 200 people and feel at home. But for people that just started coming, it's hard for them to get to know anybody just passing them once or twice on a Sunday morning. And so we have to spend time with each other to get to know and love one another. So they continued in the breaking of bread from house to house and they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Don't you just love Jesus that part of his growth strategy was eaten praise God and then they grew influentially they were praising God and having favor with all the people here's a great question to ask someone asked me this the other day it, it was terrifying to me if your church closed its doors for the final time this Sunday would your city even notice it What does it add to the city that would be missed if you closed your doors? The church is to have influence. I'm not talking about political influence. I'm talking about the influence that comes from living good, clean, godly lives and both individually and institutionally serving others. And then, this is important, it grew numerically. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Numbers matter. I remember reading about a couple that went to the, to the, to the uh, beach, to the ocean. And they had three little boys. And when they got ready to go, the mama said, Honey, I can't find the youngins. So they scurried around and they found two of the boys. And the daddy said, Well, let's go. 
And she said, wait a second, we've got three youngins. He said, well, we've got two out of three. That ain't bad. Numbers don't really matter anyway. I heard a pastor say the other day, he had a lady come to him and say, you know, I think 200 is perfect size for the church. You got enough money to do what you want to do. You can have a good choir. You can have staff. You know, you pay the light bill. But it's still small enough for everybody to enjoy being around each other and knowing each other. I think 200 is perfect size in the pastor. Uh, size for a church and the pastor saying so you're saying that once you reach 200 everybody else can go to hell right numbers matter not because of numbers not because of report but because that represents souls it matters that we're reaching souls for Jesus that's why we were left here if all God wanted to do was to take us to heaven. He could have saved us a whole lot of trouble if he just killed us when he saved us and took us on to heaven. But he left us here because he wants us to see souls saved and added to the body, added to the church. Numbers matter. Now here's the important thing. Not everything that grows is helpful. Diane, I rejoiced your testimony this morning cancer free you had something growing in your body that wasn't healthy it was cancerous not everything that grows is healthy but everything that is healthy grows everything that is healthy grows so we're asking God Lord restore our health so we can reach others for you. Now I'm going to wrap it up, put a bow on it right here. Have you ever on the internet, maybe something appear on your phone or somebody send you a link or something, you ever read about those outdated kind of ideas and practices that our forefathers had? Like, like give me, let me give you an example. In the 1700s, most doctors felt that if you had a cold or a sore throat, that the solution was to open up your veins and let some of that sickness bleed out. In fact, if I remember my history correctly, that's how George Washington died. He got sick and the doctor leaded blood and let too much of it get away. In the 1800s, this, this is interesting, in the 1800s, Somebody, it became a fad to have cemetery picnics. To go to some rural cemetery, like a park, and spread a lunch. After you had lunch, hunt rabbits. Became a fad. Ladies, mothers would give their children that got a little, a little uh, eel. They'd give them soothing syrup had healthy stuff in it like morphine they'd give their, they'd give their children they didn't know anybody they'd give their children narcotics to make them happier and it worked <laughs> in fact did you know that Abraham Lincoln went and filled a prescription for cocaine he wasn't in some back alley. He wasn't a drug addict. He wasn't in some back alley. 
They used cocaine. They prescribed cocaine back in the 1860s. How about this? They had heroin cough syrup in the 1800s. All of those things are, are outdated. And if we look back at the book of Acts, we can be tempted to take that attitude. We can say those, those methods and those means, they're outdated, they're antiquated, they're odd, they're almost comical to us. But what if the God that sees down the road of history all the way to the end of time and beyond said, I'm going to give them an instruction book that's timeless. I'm going to give them an instruction manual that will work in every century where it's applied. So when the church fails, it doesn't fail because it's tried an antiquated program in the Bible. It fails because it tries something else than what's in the Bible or it doesn't try at all. But if we'll get together and be a glowing church and a going church and a growing church, we'll have the same results that they had in the book of Acts. You say, well, pastor, that's a dawning task. I got bad news. It's worse than that. It's not a hard thing. It's an impossible thing. Unless God stacks the deck and imparts to us Himself in the person of the Holy Ghost. We can't glow or go or grow on our own. But when the Holy Ghost gets in the body of Christ, when he becomes our heartbeat and our breath, I'm going to tell you, you'll see people glow you've never seen glow before. You'll see people go that used to wouldn't leave their house and cross the street. You'll see a church, you'll see, how many have been in the church where revival was taking place and people pull in from off the street and say, I don't know why I'm here, but something told me I had to come. If we'll let God be God, We'll become a New Testament church. I want you to stand in just a moment. We're going to have a special prayer. Our children are outside waiting. We'll have a special prayer for them. But before we do, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here today and you're saved and you know it, lift your hand. Praise God. Now, as no one's looking around, if you're here and you do not know the Lord as your personal Savior, would you be honest with the Lord and honest with yourself and slip up your hand? Say, Pastor, I'm not saved. Would you remember me? Okay, praise the Lord. This is a wonderful, look at me all over the building. This is a wonderful day because we preach the sermon to Christians and there are Christians here to hear it today. Now, how many as a Christian say, you know what? I believe I've been living far below my privilege and my responsibility I want to be filled with the presence and the power of God so that I'll be that kind of New Testament Christian. How many wants that? Come on, how many wants that? You know, I thank, thank those of y'all that were honest enough not to say I wanted it and you didn't. How many of you want it? All right, now if you want it, I want us to come down to this altar and let's seek the Lord because that's not found by wishing and wanting. It's found 
by being in God's presence. So let's come from all over this building. Let's come and say, God, I want to be filled with your presence and your power. I want to be a New Testament church. I want to experience the power and peace of the Holy Ghost. I want to go. I want to glow. I want to go. I want to grow. I want to be full of your power and your mercy and your grace to a lost and dying world. Come on, lift your hands. Let me pray over you. Father, in Jesus' name.